Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel in the New Book Networks. My name is Yakir Englander, your host today. The book Migrating Tales situates the Babylonic Talmud, or how we call it the Bavli, in its cultural context by reading several rich rabbinic stories against the background of Greek, Arabic, Persian, and other literature of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, much of it Christian in origin. In this nuanced book, Professor Richard Kalman argues that non-Jewish literature deriving from the Eastern Roman provinces is a crucially important key to interpreting Babylonian rabbinic literature to a degree unimagined by early scholars. In our talk, we will speak about how a story and how tradition, which maybe imagine that they live in a bubble, actually influence and speak, argue, and have conflict and maybe also peace with other cultures. Professor Richard Kalming is teaching as a JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary. Richard, welcome to the New Books Network. It's so good to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to take part. Thank you. So my first question, I I love the title of your book, Migrating Tales. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about your interests of going to this ancient and fascinating Jewish text, the Midrash, the Talmud, but you look at that from cultural point of view. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Well, I find, uh, first of all, I find the, um, the, uh, the Talmud and the, in particular, the stories in the Talmud to be fascinating in and of themselves. But um, I find you get a much richer uh, three-dimensional uh, appreciation uh, for, for the Talmud and for the Agadot. Um, by looking at the uh, the wider cultural context, and by uh, comparing the versions of uh, of stories and even motifs within stories um, that are in the Talmud with what you find in the surrounding cultures, um, and uh, it um, so so therefore you can examine them um, and and see how. Uh, the role that these stories play in in the culture of, say, Christian culture, in pagan culture, um, Persian culture, Mesopotamian culture, uh, all of those things, um, and and compare that with what you find in Jewish culture. So, uh, so if you're looking, at, you're comparing and contrasting. Uh, the version of one with the version in a in a uh, contemporaneous culture, you can you can see 
some of the uh, fascinating differences and fascinating commonalities between the uh, uh, between the two cultures, between them, uh, actually the multiple cultures uh, that were all, were all flourishing at the same time in roughly the same place, um, and also you can you can get a get a sense of the uh, the wider history of the uh, of the period um, by looking at the the um, various places that these stories and these motifs started, uh, or at least that we can um, identify them as starting, you know, they could have this prehistory and probably a lot of them do, even though it's not currently accessible to us. So you can compare where they started to how they, where they ended up. And uh, uh, then you can look, uh, you, know, you can look even further um, at where they went into the Middle Ages, into even the early modern period. Um, and uh, you can trace it along those lines. And you, you get a sense of the, the currents, the directions that uh, traditions were, um, were traveling in uh, across uh, the, the, the centuries and across the vast geographical uh, areas. Thank you. So when we think about um, the time of the text that, were, that you, you choose to your book, it starts around when? Um, well, if you're talking about the Talmud, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, which is the Talmud that was produced uh, uh, within the, the Persian Empire uh, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what is uh, southwest, not today, southwest Iraq, <clears throat> um, you're talking about a, uh, a, a compilation that... Um, dates from roughly the third century CE until um, uh, approximately the seventh century CE. Uh, it, has, uh, it has traditions there from uh, much before that, okay? Um, a lot of them came from the, the land of Israel, um, starting from the first and second centuries CE. Uh, but as I try to show in my book, uh, it's not all within Judea culture, far from it, um, that a lot of it uh, comes from uh, Christian culture, from Greek and Roman culture uh, in the, um, what vis-a-vis -vis the, the, uh, the, the Jews in Babylonia is concerned, it's from the West, Okay, um, and uh, it also comes from various points within uh, Persia, okay, other parts of Persia, uh, a corner of which the rabbis um, flourished, uh, and uh, even, even within, um, within Mesopotamia and within Armenia, both of which were heavily Christian parts of the Western Persian Empire, okay, uh, in close contact with the, uh, 
with the Babylonian rabbis, um, that all finds its way into uh, into the uh, the culture of uh, the Babylonian Talmud. And traditionally, the Babylonian Talmud has been studied really in isolation, virtually in isolation from other cultures, but um, particularly over the last uh, 50 years. But even before that, people have been realizing just how much of Talmud uh, comes from uh, diverse contexts and is immersed in um, the uh, really the total cosmopolitan um, uh, culture that uh, um, that together represented the, the the civilized world at that point. So it's so interesting, and and I want to to try to to get your help to understand um, how much these rabbis or these scholars were aware to these influences. So let's take an example from today, okay? Mm -hmm. So when we think about, um, uh, as an Israeli, um, I think about the, the Israeli community, I mean, the Jewish community in Israel and the Jewish community in America. So the Jewish community in Israel, in a way, they believe or they have a feeling as if they are a bubble for itself. Right. I mean, they don't think about how much we are influenced by the Middle East, right, where we are part of now. However, when they think about American Jews, sometimes they said, oh, American Jews are so Americans, right? Mm -hmm. They're so Americans. And they bring the Jewish humor that actually it's an American humor. They bring uh -huh. the value of academy. It's like so many things that Israelis think, oh, American Jews, they are Americans first. Mm -hmm. However, if they will look at, on themselves, maybe they will find how much they became more and more part of the Middle East, where mm -hmm. you can see in the movies, in music, etc. So now let's go back to the Talmud. Yes, and the yes. question is, how much self-reflection they have about themselves and also about their colleagues who are coming maybe from Babylon or mm -hmm. coming from other areas? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that is the, the a fascinating question. Uh, I would call that uh, taking account of it. inflation. That's the six million four hundred thousand dollar <laughs> question, um, because all of these uh, ancient cultures, not just the the Babylonian rabbis, but uh, you know the, the Mesopotamian Christians, the um, um, the Greeks and Romans, uh, they don't like to admit that they are drawing uh, motifs and, and, and stories from other places. Um, you know, when you find, uh, when you find uh, just to give you one of what could be countless examples, when you find, a, when you find a tradition in the Babylonian Talmud, um, it will either be introduced without context, okay? Uh, it'll just be introduced in the middle of a discussion about something really very tangentially related to it. Um, but there it is. We don't aren't given any hint of 
uh, where it comes from. Um, and uh, uh, so that's what contributed for so many centuries to the tendency of reading these sources in isolation from other sources. Uh, and, uh, you know, the other thing that is done very often is you'll have a tradition uh, quoted in, in the Talmud or a story quoted in, in the Talmud, which has very, very close parallels in another literature from another culture. Um, but it will be introduced in, uh, in the Bafli, in the, which is another word from the, for the Babylonian Talmud, by the way, um, with the introduction, Tano Rabbanan, okay, which means our rabbis taught. In other words, as far as the Babylonian Talmud is concerned, this tradition, which we know, okay, if we do the hard work of finding the parallels in another culture, actually uh, was uh, originated, you know, a thousand years ago or 300 years ago um, in uh, uh, the Eastern Roman provinces, okay? When, and when I say that, I'm talking about, um, uh, for example, Eastern Syria, I'm talking about Egypt, yeah. you know, places like that. Um, so that's its point of origin, at least as far as we can um, tell, looking at the available evidence, okay? Um, at, at, when, when it gets to the Babylonian Talmud, they're not, they're hiding that. And they're, and they're telling us that this is simply a, um, a Tanaitic tradition, okay, deriving from the Palestinian rabbis, um, just like, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of other traditions uh, in the Bafli. Um, and uh, uh, there's a, a, a very studied attempt to cover over its origin. Uh, and exactly what is behind that is not entirely clear. So that really, you know, your question goes to the root of that. And um, I, 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 that's a very long and roundabout way of saying, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> so in a way you say they hide it, but maybe they were aware yes. that... Right. Yeah. I mean, you can find somewhere that they have some self-awareness that mm -hmm. actually they adopted a different tradition, non-Jewish tradition. Right. Right. And also sometimes uh, later commentators in, in the Talmud itself, you know, mm -hmm. later generations will respond to the, the story, okay, in ways that indicate that they could tell that this is, um, that this is foreign. You know, that this is not what we would expect our predecessors, our sainted predecessors to say. So what's going on here? And they, and they so they will attempt to, um, to uh, domesticate it uh, through commentary. Now, since the first and second and third centuries, you know, there are so deep into the question of like beginning of Christianity and actually some people will say this is the new beginning of the Jewish people as we know them right with the Purshim mm -hmm. um, 
and we have different sects. So do you feel that in that time you can find more awareness of how much there were choices inside the Jewish community, what to go, what to take from the past, where we say no, since maybe Christianity took this value, so we will take another value? Um, you, you definitely find that at, uh, in, in uh, many contexts where uh, the Jews are insisting that, okay, um, these other people who shall be named uh, nameless, okay, um, <laughs> since, since they accept this uh, opinion, okay, we are going to uh, reject that opinion and uh, accept a different one, okay? Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, stories that I, that I treat in the Talmud, uh, in my book, um, is a portrayal of uh, Isaiah. Yes. Okay. And um, if you just look at that story in the Talmud, um, okay, it's, it's about Isaiah, okay? And these things happen to Isaiah. Um, and by the way, the, according to the story in the Talmud, uh, King Menashe, who is, um, who is a very wicked king as portrayed in the book of Kings in the Bible, right. uh, executes Isaiah. And there's no hint of that in, uh, in the, the Bible itself. Um, but this is a tradition that, that developed independently of, of the Bible. Okay. So um, when you... Uh, uh, for the rabbis, usually Isaiah is a great hero. But in this story, Isaiah is portrayed in ways that uh, counter his uh, usual portrayal as a, uh, as a hero. He's portrayed as less, a good deal less than heroic. And um, uh, one of the points of the story is that uh, Isaiah is not as great as he's usually made out to be. Okay? Uh, so that's why this story is concerned to, to criticize it. Can you give an example for that? Okay. Um, he is, uh, he's portrayed as somebody who um, is not as important as Moshe, okay, um, he's he's portrayed as someone who who contradicts vitally important things that Moshe said. So, for example, he says that the um, the Israelites did all kinds of horrible things, and God hated them for that. Okay, um, and if you look ac actually look at the prophets in the Bible, you see that there's a lot of a very, um, very scathing criticisms that the prophets make of the Israelite people. Okay, uh, and it turns out that that was embarrassing to the Jews. Okay, during the time that the the Talmud was composed. Okay. And the Christians, it turns out, 
Okay, we can't tell that from the printed page of the Talmud, but we know if we look at uh, Christian literature, uh, 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 contemporaneous Christian literature, that the Christians use that against the Jews. Your own prophets, who are who you consider saints, are saying horrible things about you. Okay, There's, they say. You know, and again, you can find all kinds of quotations in the prophets about how God has rejected the Jewish people. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, that's the that's one thing that this story that I write about has against Isaiah. Okay. Another thing that they have against Isaiah is that he. Uh, so what uh, Moshe Moshe says uh, um, that. And, and the Bible says that um, nobody can see God and live. Right. Okay? Right. That, uh, the Bible says that at, at one point. Okay. Um, and however, Isaiah says, contradicting Moses, that I saw God seated on a, on a high and lofty chair. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I myself saw him with my own eyes. Right. Okay. So that was another thing that the rabbis thought was horrible that Isaiah said. Okay. And it turns out that this story that I write about in the Talmud um, portrays Menashe's execution of Isaiah as justified. Okay. By the Jewish law. Um, yes. And right, exactly. Uh, that um, it, it is so that Isaiah, it's true that he was a prophet, but he got too big for his britches and um, Menashe put him in his place. So the, one, of, one of the uh, puzzles um, of this story is why would they portray Menashe in such a, a relatively positive way, given the, the the extremely negative way that he's portrayed in the Book of Kings? Right. Well, then it turns out that in the Book of Chronicles, another book of the Bible, Menashe does tshuva, he does repentance, and he ends up uh, being restored to his throne and he lives happily ever after. So this Talmudic story is one of the relatively few places in all of rabbinic literature where we see how uh, that portrayal of Menashe gets played out. Okay, so they cut Isaiah down to size, okay, which is not the way they usually portray Isaiah in the Talmud, and they build Menashe up, which is also not the way they portray Menashe in in the Talmud. Okay. Um, So, uh, and then we have this, it turns out then that we have the same tradition about Menashe executing Isaiah in Christian literature in another, uh, in a bunch of places. Okay. And there, they portray Menashe as the heavy, okay, and Isaiah as the hero, because the Christians 
don't have a problem with Isaiah condemning the Israelites for being wicked. Okay, that that's perfectly they're perfectly fine with that. Okay, and they also don't have a problem with Isaiah saying things that portray himself as superior to Moses, because after all, okay, Moses, okay, he he was he was okay as far as the Christians are concerned, but the later prophets, that's what Christianity really seized upon as spectacular, okay? They supersede Moshe, and what do they do? They make all kinds of prophecies about the coming of the Redeemer, about the coming of Jesus Christ, okay? And so uh, what, what is a very positive story about Isaiah in the Christian literature is a, is a negative story about Isaiah in Jewish rabbinic literature. So um, the, uh, and it also turns out that uh, the name Isaiah, Yeshayahu, which consists of the same basic consonants as the name uh, for Jesus, Yeshu, Okay, Yeshayahu and Ye- versus Yeshu. Okay, they uh, the the Christians interpreted anytime you find uh, the root Yud Shin Ayin Yesha or Yeshu in the um, uh, in the Bible, and you find a bunch of those uh, of those cases in the Book of Isaiah. Okay, uh, they find that as a reference to a hint to um, the coming of Jesus Christ. So my claim is that in, the, in this story in the Talmud, um, the rabbis are taking this same figure, Yeshayahu, and they're accepting it as a reference to Yeshu, but, um, but they view that as a negative, okay? And just as the, the um, Christian Messiah is killed by, by means of a tree or through a tree, okay, the, the crucifixion, okay, in the, um, in the rabbinic story in the Babylonian Talmud, Isaiah is also killed, executed by means, uh, by means of, through the aid of a tree, okay. It, uh, so, but, but in inside the tree, right? Excuse me. It, but he's killed also by a tree, but in a different way. Yes, in a different way, right? The tree, uh, th- uh, uh, by means of uh, Isaiah saying the, the name of God, he is swallowed up by a tree. Right. Okay, uh, and then, however, his tzitzit are showing. Okay, which enable, which is a sign that God wants Isaiah to be found by the king's men. So then he is sawn in half. That's how he dies. Okay, he is sawn in half, and that's the motif that you find both in the Christian literature and in in the Jewish literature. So, uh, and he's sawn in sawn in, in half. And how does he die? At what point does he die? He dies when the saw reaches his lips. Okay, and that's seen as the measure for measure punishment in both literatures. Okay, 
where uh, in, the, in the Jewish literature, for example, um, uh, the, the lips that Isaiah used to say all of those horrible, nasty things about the Israelites, that becomes the instrument for his death by means of the, by means of the saw. Which is fascinating since we have also other examples in, in, in the Talmud, right, where heroes of the Talmud are killed and their, and their tongue is there, right? Mm-hmm. It's cut like a chutzpit, I think, the translator uh-huh, um, and, uh-huh, and others, yeah. which is so interesting. So actually, if I take what you just shared with us, which is so interesting, we have a debate or we have um, a fight around who is going to be the right character and who is going to be the, um, the bad character and what the other side is doing, I need to go against it. So I'm going to change my Bible by creating interpretation. And of course, we come back to the question how much I am aware of that. Or actually, I think that I really interpreted the Bible in the right way. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so this is such a good example to see how as, a, as Christianity developed, we see the Jewish community also develop in trying to fight around tradition. Can you, I mean, and again, for the readers, I will, and, the, and our audience, I will deeply will suggest to go and read the whole book because each chapter, what I loved about this book, that each chapter, you take an example and you really open it. Like you, you take it to you analyze it with so much richness around. Um, so I wonder if you can, Richard, take for us one more example of how Jewish culture or the Talmud is influenced by maybe farther traditions like Persians or the Romans in one of the many examples that you have there. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's see. The, um, uh, well, there is um, one example that I talk about, uh, which is a story about uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And Saint Bartholomew, right? Yeah, and Saint Bartholomew. I love that. Let's work with that, please. Okay, okay. Um, so Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai uh, it goes to Rome and there is a uh, persecution by the Romans of the Jews um, that they uh, can't observe the Sabbath. They can't observe the, the laws of menstrual purity, etc. And circumcision, and, uh, I think, right? Excuse and, me? and circumcise. They're not allowed to yeah, circumcise they their kids. Right. They, yes, yes. They can't circumcise the children. Right. And... Uh, First, there's, there's this, actually, uh, I, th- I think it's a hilarious scene where a rabbi, uh, ra- his name is uh, Rabbi Ruven, Ruven Istrobili, okay, who is uh, known to uh, interact with, uh, with the Romans and dresses like a Roman. So he's kind of, part of his job is to pass as Roman, okay? Um, and uh, he's, he's trying to convince them that all of their decrees against the Jews 
okay, against the, the Jews observing their laws are actually uh, not in the Romans' best interest, okay? Because each of these laws, um, each, each of these observances, uh, when, when the Jews perform them, it causes them to be weaker, okay? So for example, uh, if they're observing the Sabbath, they're idle, okay? Um, and uh, they're not producing anything. So that makes them poorer, okay? Um, so uh, therefore, it's not good to outlaw that. The Romans should be cons- uh, encouraging the Jews <laughs> to do that, okay? And it goes like, uh, on like that. Uh, the, uh, the mitzvah of circumcision uh, weakens the Jews because they have to recover for it. It's painful, okay? Uh, and um, that too, the, uh, this rabbi says, you should encourage them to do that because that weakens them, okay? And uh, it goes on and on like that. Um, so uh, the, the Romans think, hmm, that's, a, that's an excellent idea, okay? And then they abrogate the, the decrees, but then they realize that Rabbi Ruvain is Jewish, and then they, so they restore them, they, that he was just trying to hoodwink them, okay? But uh, anyway, the, the, uh, the storyteller is having a, a good laugh at the, at the Romans because um, uh, they thought, you know, they're, they're being uh, told to believe that all of these mitzvot weaken the Jewish uh, uh, the Jewish people, when actually observing this moat, uh, these mitzvot is what uh, allows them to keep their covenant with God, which ensures their 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 flourishing and their survival. Okay, right. all right. But anyway, so back to uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, he uh, uh, he he is a he, he is sent to the to the Romans. Okay, to the emperor, um, because he's a known miracle worker. Okay, um, and uh, actually, this uh, this uh, depiction of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as a as a miracle worker had a, a tremendously interesting afterlife uh, into the uh, even even the modern world. Okay. Um, with uh, a lot of uh, philosophical, a lot of Hasidic thought about, uh, uh, about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But anyway, as far as the Talmud is concerned, okay. So- which, which is fascinating, right? That you have yeah. this image of a rabbi that until today, and actually yeah. I think today in Israel, even more in the past, right. you have a celebration for his Memorial Day yeah. where a hundred thousand Jews will come to celebrate and right. have a whole perform. Right. But yes, yeah. and, and, and he's a very, if I remember Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he's an example for an extreme against the Romans. Yes. In yes. Great. Right, right. Yes. In another, in, in another um, Agadah, right. That, that's also in the background of mm-hmm. this. Okay. But um, so anyway, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in this story, misbehaves in in a lot of really serious ways. And one, actually, one thing that you will find in story after story in in the Bavli is the way the rabbis love to depict themselves with 
all kinds of horrible shortcomings. Okay, um, they are, you know, on the one hand, they're larger than life, and they can behave like saints, but they, uh, but also they can behave like um, tremendous antiheroes and do all kinds of horrible things. <clears throat> so uh, Rabbi Shimbar Yochai in this story is is um, portrayed as uh, <clears throat> plagiarizing. Okay, um, he passes somebody else's teaching off as his own, which is just about the worst thing a rabbi can do. Um, that uh, short of murder. Okay, um, this this is. This is horrible. To deny somebody's intellectual property is uh, just unforgivable. Okay. And what else does he do? He, um, he, he had promised not to hurt another rabbi who, who goes along with him to try to uh, convince the Romans to, um, to stop the persecution. Okay. And he, uh, uh, this this rabbi, this other rabbi, whose name is uh, Rabbi Elazar, um, <clears throat> agrees to go with Rabbi Shimon. But then Rabbi Elazar's father says, "No, I don't want Rabbi Shimon going uh, with him, with my son because I don't trust him." In other words, he's more afraid of Rabbi Shimon and what he will do than he is of the Romans. Okay, and uh, lo and behold. Okay, it eventually happens that the two of them are going together, okay, Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Shimon. And um, Rabbi Shimon gets furious with Rabbi Elazar. And as a result of that, he, he curses him, okay? Um, so, it, it, you know, the father's uh, tremendous worry was actually, turn, turns out to have been justified. Right. Okay. Um, so, what else does uh, Rebbe Shimon do? He, uh, oh, so finally he meets up with this character, um, Ben Talamium. Okay. Which, um, judging from parallels in uh, Arabic sources uh, and <clears throat> it, in the literature of other cultures, seems to be uh, a Hebrew and Ar Aramaic way of referring to the word, to the name Bartholomew, okay? Ben Talamion uh, Bartholomew, okay? Um, and uh, that, uh, this Bar uh, Ben Talamion is portrayed as a demon who offers, who suddenly appears to them, uh, to, them to the rabbis, and offers to help them, okay? So you may think, well, what is a demon offering, doing, offering to help rabbis? I thought demons were evil. Well, it, uh, it turns out that in the, in the ancient world, a lot of times demons uh, were either neutral or even positive, okay? Um, and so this is a, a positive uh, demon. Um, and why is it, uh, why is his, his name Bartholomew? Well, I have a theory about that, which I'll talk about in just a second. Um, so finally, so Rabbi Shimon is, uh, when he sees the demon offering to help, he is extremely upset. 
okay? Because he says, look, you read the Bible and a character like Hagar, you know, a maidservant, right? She, um, she gets angel, an angel comes to speak with her, but all I get is a demon. And I have a demon. Yeah, all I have is a demon. So, um, but in, in the end, he, he agrees to go with the demon to accept the, the demon's help. And um, so, again, I think that uh, uh, that is part of the uh, transition in the story, which uh, depicts Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as finally learning his lesson, finally learning to behave himself, okay? Learning the humility necessary uh, in order to help the Jewish people um, get out of this uh, horrible persecution, okay? So the, uh, the, the demon, uh, accompanies them to uh, to Rome. It turns out that the uh, that the emperor's daughter is possessed by it uh, is sick. Okay, she's sick. So the demon uh, takes possession of her body. He inhabits her body. Okay, and then the uh, the the idea is that Rabbi Shimon is supposed to say, you know, he's supposed to exercise this demon. So this is an, an agreement they had beforehand. Okay, so Rabbi Shimon says, get out of her, get out of her, leave. Okay, so the, uh, the demon obediently leaves. And um, the, lo and behold, the, uh, uh, the emperor's daughter is cured. The emperor is, um, uh, is ecstatic and he offers the, the rabbis whatever they want, okay? So, um, uh, so what they want is the end to the decrees, which was a, um, which was a very important gesture on their part because they could have asked for tremendous riches, okay? Uh, because you find this, this same motif of a rabbi uh, or a holy man performing a miracle for a leader and uh, being rewarded with, enormous riches, but Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Elazar only ask for the end to the persecutions. Okay, so this is a so this together with his behavior with accepting uh, the offer of help from the demon, that's a sign that he has learned his lesson. Okay, and uh, all right, so finally, how is this uh, story relevant to me because once again, you have these same figures, these same stories told in other cultures. And where does, where does Bartholomew come from? Bartholomew, Ben Tholomew. Um, my, my theory is that that comes from the name of, of one of Jesus's disciples in the New Testament. And all we know about this Ben Bartholomew in the New Testament is that he, like all of the other uh, apostles of Jesus, is a uh, an exorcist. Okay, but they have uh, so why do they choose Bartholomew, who is um, certainly uh, all he is is he's a cipher in the New Testament. He's just a, just a name. Okay, um, it turns out that. Uh, 
Armenian Christianity, okay, which is um, basically a hop, skip, and a jump uh, distant from the Babylonian rabbis uh, in, in the uh, Persian Empire. Um, they had adopted Bartholomew as their patron saint. Right. Okay? Yeah. Right. So, um, so this is a way for the, uh, for the rabbis to use um, Armenian Christianity, this, this uh, vitally important figure in, in their, uh, in, in their pra the practice of their religion, okay, Bartholomew, as a tool to think with. Okay, so they make Bartholomew no longer an apostle, okay, an exorcist. Rather, they make him uh, out to be a demon, which in the history of religions is a very common uh, phenomenon where one religion will adopt uh, a, an angel or a hero or, or even a divinity from, from one religion and demote him to... Uh, to a demon, okay? So that's my um, theory about what's going on in this story, that they're taking uh, this motif, which partly comes from the New Testament, um, which was produced in the Eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, and this, um, the figure of this, uh, this apostle, Bartholomew, which comes from Armenia, which is much closer just, uh, geographically to the rabbis. And together with that, you get this, um, uh, uh, that's the seed from which this entire elaborate story uh, arises. And then can we find any sources in the Ar um, Ar Armenian Christianity who knows about the use of the rabbis of their hero as a demon, and is there any dialogue that is happening with that? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, or you know, I I have not uh, uh, been able to find that yet, but um, I'm still looking. <laughs> Fascinating. So, Richard, thank you so much. I really love how you take a story, but then not only explain what other scholars show us in the story but you also really open it like as a Wikipedia to a different layers of influences and dialogues and um, competitions, right? Between traditions. Mm -hmm. Richard, thank you so much for being in the New Books Network. Thank you very much. And, and by the way, uh, just uh, want to put in uh, one small plug. Please. Um, my book is uh, coming out in paperback. Uh, Great. In uh, uh, the middle of May of this year. So we can find it in both in hardcover and in paper very right. soon. Thank yes. you so much. Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me.